I can remember before the service got started, I was kneeling in the pew, pouring my heart out. I was absolutely overwhelmed with the assurance that I wasn't alone, that God would be with me, and that He would be with my little girl. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. I'm speaking in good faith today with Dr. Mary Lou Shea. She's from the Church of the Nazarene. She has a BA in French Language and Literature from Ohio Wesleyan University, Master's and Doctor of Theology from Boston University School of Theology. But my favorite thing I found out about you, oh, uh, Dr. Shea, reading online, <laughs> was that you had at one point been a volunteer as a Salvation Army kettle drive bell ringer. Yes. That That was a glorious experience. I just love the picture of that, both your volunteer spirit and what you were trying to accomplish. But you liked it. I loved it. I I stood there for eight hours ringing my bell in the mall uh, just before Christmas. I was wearing a navy blue skirt and navy pumps and a, a red turtleneck sweater. And apparently that looks enough like the Salvation Army uniform that many people thought I was an officer in the Mm. Salvation Army. And I had to explain that I was just volunteering. But over the course of those eight hours, it was really a wonderful thing to see parents teaching little children that it's a good thing to give, that the money that goes into this kettle is going to help people in need. And I had older people coming up and telling me stories about coming back from World War II and the Salvation Army were the only ones to greet them when they landed on American soil or they were in Europe and escaping the Nazis and the Salvation Army took them in or, you know, middle-aged folks coming in and talking about how they had they'd gone through a very difficult period in their lives and had been living on the streets and the Salvation Army had taken them in and now They had become ministers themselves, or they were gainfully employed and had wonderful families. And so I left feeling so much more enriched than exhausted. You know, it was a really glorious set of testimonies. I got to listen to people's testimonies all day long. Did you grow up in the Church of the Nazarene? I did not. I grew up Roman Catholic. And then tell me what your earliest experience or or memories are of religion in your life. Oh, well... um, If the church doors were open, we were there. And if they weren't open, my mom probably had the key. Um, She was sort of the functional equivalent of a Sunday school superintendent, which for the CCD classes in our Catholic parish meant a lot of hours, just of attendance lists and making contact with families and so on. I remember from a very, very early age, my mother explaining to me that we were gifts to her and daddy from God and that it was their responsibility to raise us to the best of their ability because they would have to answer to God one day and that it was their job to model for us and encourage us and lead us into an understanding of who God is and how deeply we're loved in the work that Christ has done on our behalf and the power of the Holy Spirit. So I was really very fortunate to grow up in a household where I In the Church of the Nazarene, oftentimes people speak of having a conversion experience when they first came to know Jesus. And I can't remember a time when Jesus wasn't a part of the family, Mm. which was such a blessing for me growing up. You know, there were times when I didn't care much for my family. (laughs) I think that's true of everybody at various (laughs) points in their, you know, uh, middle years. But it, it was such a glorious thing. And related to that, I really wanted to be a priest I loved the preaching You remember function. wanting to. I wanted to be a priest from the time I was a very little girl and talking to my mom about it. And she said, well, honey, not in Catholicism. 
you know, the alternative is to be a sister or a nun. But that's really probably not for you. It's clear to me already that you are too interested in having a family of your own and Mm. being out in the world. And so probably not for you. But all of, you know, for most of my life, I've nurtured that call to preach and to teach. Eventually, I ended up in the Church of the Nazarene, which honors that call in women, believes it that the good Lord calls us to do different things. And if he calls a woman to preach and then graces her with the ability to do so, the church shouldn't stand in her way. And I understand even within the next month, you'll be receiving your official certification to do just that. Yeah, that's right. It's taken me a while to get there. I spent a very long time teaching others who were going into ministry and encouraging them along the way. And in fact, most people thought I was already an ordained elder in the church in part because I spent so much time doing things at the church and serving in ministerial capacities. And I finally got to a point where I thought, yeah, I think it's time to act on this. Now the time is right. It hadn't necessarily been right before, but this felt like the right time. My district superintendent, who's the functional equivalent of a Protestant bishop, has been very supportive, very encouraging. And so Uh, I'm on the way. In another couple of weeks, I'll be able to administer sacraments and minister, pastor a church if I so choose. And it's a whole new adventure that the Lord is taking me on. So from the beginning and and sort of aspiring to that, to be involved that way in service to others, Mm -hmm. were there belief road bumps, times of questioning the existence of God? Or was that a gift you always had to believe? Yeah, it is one of the great gifts, I think, that I have been given is that Faith has never been a struggle for me. Hmm. There have been times when I've had a few choice words for the way things were going, but I'm reminded regularly <laughs> in by your, the— In your life. In my life. Mm-hmm. But I have been uh, reminded by the psalmist that God has big shoulders. He can take pretty much we need to say. He can hear it, hmm. and he can work with it, uh, because even complaining or worrying or struggling is still an expression of faith. It's when we stop talking— to God that we run into trouble. Hmm. And uh, so, and and certainly there have been times when my practice of a faithful life has not been to the standard that it should have been, but God was faithful in those moments as well and put people in my life and, and situations in my life and inspiration in my life that has led me back to where I feel I should be on the path. Did you feel God guiding you on your journey to the Church of the Nazarene, for instance, and <laughs> where, where you practice now. I did, and actually that's that's a wonderful question. I was thinking about changing careers. I had been in the insurance industry and was feeling a very strong call toward a healing kind of a career. And so I interpreted that as nursing. Mm. It may well have been a shove towards ministry, but I wasn't seeing it that way. And so I was driving near an intersection of a couple of major expressways just south of the city of Boston. Uh, My sister was in the car with me, and we're driving along at 60 miles an hour, and I heard a voice very distinctly say to me, you need to go to ENC, Eastern Nazarene College. I turned to my sister, and I said, why did you say that? And she looked at me as though I had rocks in my head, and she said, (laughs) I didn't say anything, Mary Lou. And I said, no, I distinctly heard you tell me that I needed to go to ENC. And she said, Mary Lou, I promise you, I didn't say a word. So I thought, well, that's kind of odd. It was it was a not a particularly deep voice, but it sounded like a man's voice talking to me. And I thought, well, I must have just misheard Janet. And that was what 
she had said. So then a couple of weeks later, I was at that same intersection. I was alone in the car, and I very clearly heard the same voice saying to me, you need to go to ENC. And I thought, okay, this is getting a little unusual, (laughs) but maybe I was just thinking about it in the back of my mind. The third time, another week later, I was on my way past this intersection, and I was thinking very much about the place I was headed to. I had an appointment that I had to get to, so I was focused very intensely on that. And this voice interrupted me, and it was a little more forceful this time. It said, Mary Lou, go to ENC. I thought, well, when the same voice tells you three times to do something, and it's it's very clearly not a human voice that I'm listening to, I'd better pay attention. Mm. So I'm very certain that that was the Lord speaking to me and telling me you need to go in that direction. It led me into the Church of the Nazarene and introduced me to my husband, who was a molecular biologist on the faculty at Eastern Nazarene College, and gave me wonderful, rich Christian friendships that have supported me across the years in good times and bad, uh, including when my husband was battling and eventually succumbed to brain cancer, and then gave me a place uh, to explore the possibility that maybe it was okay, even for me, to be involved in professional, active, full-time ministry. Hmm. I'm trying to imagine anyone growing up in a particular tradition Mm -hmm. where they had experienced God and found happiness and then changing to worship in a different tradition Mm -hmm. because that can affect family, can affect friendships. Right. How did that play out for you? (laughs) Um, I fell in love with a man who had been divorced. And in Roman Catholicism, divorce is, Hmm. is incompatible with full life in the faith. You're not allowed to participate in the sacraments, for Mm -hmm. example. And in addition to that, because I was feeling this continuous nudging toward ministry, I was a little bit distressed by the fact that in Catholicism, I had limited opportunities to live into what I truly believe to be God's call on my life. And so I ended up moving into the Episcopal Church, which some of my Episcopal friends have called Catholic Light, because it's, it feels very much like Catholicism, and um, it's sort of a pared-down version of the Catholic magisterium, the Catholic teachings and faith, and uh, was there very happily for a number of years, well, during which time uh, I had my daughter and, and eventually had to leave that marriage because my first husband was a very abusive man. I probably would have just stayed until I ended up dying in the marriage, but I had to protect my daughter. Hmm went to my uh, my priest and talked to him about it, and he sent me to a Christian counseling center, and I was strongly advised, you have to get out to save your life and your daughter's. So we left, and I presumed that I would be alone for the rest of my life. When I married, I intended it to be forever. Yeah, I just didn't expect that that till death do us part aspect would come as quickly as it appeared to be coming. So ended up with my daughter on my own and thought, well, now would be a good time to retool and think about moving in this healing direction, and nursing seemed the obvious thing. And it was when I went to ENC to pursue the coursework for nursing that I met the man who became my second husband, Dan Shea. Yeah, and then I ended up not going into nursing either because I realized through a period of discernment and and prayer that the healing that I was supposed to be engaged in wasn't necessarily physical healing. Mm. From attending a panel where you were one of the panelists last Mm -hmm. night, which was excellent, and I learned so much. I'm curious, at least on the eastern seaboard Mm -hmm. of the U.S., the Church of the Nazarene comes from the Methodist family uh, of denominations, but with a focus on holiness Mm -hmm. and sanctification. Right. 
what does that mean in an everyday life to focus on holiness and sanctification? <laughs> yeah. Because it sounds like it doesn't mean go live in a cave and be fed by ravens. No, and no pray, although and there pray. are days when it seems a very attractive <laughs> alternative to getting up and going out and facing the world every day. Um, uh, and if you've never had to experience Boston rush hour traffic, you have never known what it means to be truly sanctified because um, – <laughs> People are always using sign language toward one another that is not necessarily gracious. So, yeah, living a sanctified life, living a life of holiness is recognizing, first of all, that you are sinful and you can't save yourself and that that isn't the way you want to live. It's not the way you were created to live. So you turn to God. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we believe very strongly in the notion of provenient grace, that God sort of saturates the cosmos with grace and love, and the Holy Spirit prompts us in the direction that we should go until we throw ourselves on the mercy of Jesus Christ and his atoning work for us. And And I don't even mean – I hope not to be too personal. You can decide if you'd like to answer this or not. That moment of after divorce and sort of being on your own, Mm -hmm. was that a moment like that? Or did you sort of feel confidence in God through all of that, that you'd be led? I I did feel confidence in God, although there are those who scratched their heads when I told them that and said, well, are you sure, Mary Lou? (laughs) Are you you sure (laughs) this is going to work out? But I did have moments of of great comfort that were provided Mm. to me. I I can remember a Sunday morning service. Before the service got started, I was kneeling in the pew and just pouring my heart out to God and asking for direction. I was absolutely overwhelmed with a sense of peace and comfort, a very strong sense of presence, of divine presence, and the assurance that I wasn't alone, that God would be with me, Hmm. and that he would be with my little girl. And uh, so it was moments like that with which God graced me that I did what I felt I had to do in order to protect my daughter and move on with my life. Now, certainly... I have struggled across time, not now, but in the years immediately following my divorce, I felt that I did need to repent of whatever failing it was that led my marriage to come to the point where I felt that I I had to leave it, that somehow I had failed as a wife, I had failed as, you know, God's child, that I had somehow missed the mark in following Christ's teachings. It's taken a long time for me to get to the point to realize that I was certainly, you know, human and and so subject to <laughs> surprise, surprise. Yeah, the failings and the sinfulness of humanity. But I had married a man who was very good at constructing his own realities. And when I would ask him questions, like but when we spoke our marriage vows, he looked me in the eye and said, I lied. Well, I I'm not sure what to do with that, except to say, Well, I went in with good faith, not understanding that the man I was marrying was not going into it with good faith and either religious faith or in the sense of of honoring a contract, you know. In later years, as you have ministered to other people and Mm -hmm. look forward to that, you would never ask for that experience. But do you find that that God will use that to create empathy and understanding as you help others? Yes, both with that experience and with my second marriage, which was absolute gift from beginning to end. Mm -hmm. It was absolute grace, just such a time of of genuine joy, and then having to walk through brain cancer with my husband for the last couple of years that he was alive, 
I learned an awful lot about grace then, mm. too. You know, those times when I would get – I got up at 4 o'clock in the morning so that I could prepare for my lectures starting at 8 and then would teach all day. I had a daughter in high school and Dan was declining. There were little losses every day. Not everybody noticed them right away, but because I was living with him as his wife, I noticed them every day. Through both of those experiences, I can honestly testify that I have felt times when the prayers of the people put one foot in front of the other to get me home at night from the train station, Hmm. you know, at 1030 at night after having been to the hospital to visit Dan, knowing that I still hadn't had dinner and there were still two loads of laundry to do. And, you know, I had to be in bed by midnight so I could get up at four o'clock the next morning. Um, But it has, I think it has taught me empathy. It has taught me mercy. It has taught me the value of grace and that in the giving of grace, one receives more grace that there, it's not a finite commodity. There's always enough to share and to benefit from at the same time. Certainly, I've become more aware of, and I think I pray less judgmental of people who are in situations of abuse, of desperation, of loneliness, of illness. Um, I have found across the years that many people have told me how much they appreciate the notes that I write to them even a couple of weeks ago, a friend died, and I was writing a note to her talking about certainly we pray for God's healing and we trust that it will come, whether it is in this life or the next, is for God to decide, but that we have great confidence that we understand what her future will be hmm. and that it will be in the presence of God and that we can take comfort in the fact that whatever comes, she's not facing it alone. And her family have now told me how much they treasure that and how precious those words were to her because so many people shy away. You don't want to talk about the difficult parts of life. You want to pretend that everything's fine and everybody's happy because we we don't know how to fix things. I will say that a large part of God's grace in my life has been learning that I can't fix very much at all, (laughs) but I don't need to because I know who can. Mm. I want to ask a little bit about your personal spiritual practice. But I have an idea that it partially involves your scholarly pursuits because Mm -hmm. you've done lots of research. You're a published author. In fact, you've written the biography of Hiram F. Reynolds, H.F. Reynolds, who was one of the moving forces in the beginning of the Church of the Nazarene. Right. Mm -hmm. Is that like a form of worship for you to be involved in scholarly pursuits or do you see that as more of a… A professional rather than a… Yeah. Is that more of a professional pursuit? Well, let me begin by saying that before I went to Boston University to begin my graduate and and, uh, doctoral work, I had looked at some other schools, and one of them was the Harvard Divinity School. And when I went in and was speaking with the people there, they told me with great pride that what I needed to do uh, when I walked through the door of the school was take off my faith as though it were a backpack and leave it at the door so that I would be free for the scholarly inquiry to come. And I said, well, thank you very much for your time, but I'm afraid I wouldn't be a very good fit here. Now, I think they were surprised because not many people turn Harvard down. Hmm. But I said, I can't take off my faith any more than I could take out my lungs. You know, I I can't do it. It's just a part of the fabric of my life. Knowing that little bit about me, I think every scholarly pursuit is also an act of worship on my part. I want to do the best that I can with the abilities that I have, but I don't want it to be a work that is done simply for purposes of uh, professional promotion at the workplace 
or personal promotion in the sense of having people know that I'm a bigger name in my field and therefore worthy of greater uh, uh, laud and honor. My intention in anything that I write or speak is to help express the glory of God and to reveal the, the work that God is doing in the world now through the Holy Spirit, through Christ's presence and continuing efforts on our behalf. And so working on H.F. Reynolds was really a wonderful and exciting opportunity for me. I was exhausted when I started the project. I had been working very, very long hours at Eastern Nazarene College and had finally resigned because I feared for my health. So this was a time just to spend reading the letters and eventually the minutes of meetings and the memos and so on and so forth of H.F. Reynolds. very deep into it was, that. <laughs> oh, that was a sign of real sanctification because one must be holy if one is going to sit and read 26 years of minutes for the you know missions council or whatever it might be. Uh, that's, that's a labor of love. But my goal was to bring to the Church of the Nazarene and to others who might be interested something of our own story, that this it wasn't a practical decision to start a new denomination. It was a desire to live a life of holiness where one is directing one's thoughts, words, and deeds every day to the greater glory of God and the service and service to the kingdom. H.F. Had a, had a rough childhood. He was orphaned at a very young age, given to another family to raise, and then the father died within a few months. And so at seven, he found himself the man of the house on a farm. Hmm. And uh, he, had, he had a rough beginning, did just about everything oh, sideways that could be done. He freely admitted he, you know, he drank, he smoked, he gambled. And then he had one of those experiences where God literally sort of drove him to his knees in the middle of a country lane and had a good talk to him. And, and he arose from that walk knowing that he had met Christ and that his life was going to be different evermore. And so following him through all the years of ministry, the integrity of his character, the uh, selflessness with which he and his wife both served the church, his genuine interest in caring for everyone he met. He never worried about whether or not he was going to make money off of it, and he didn't. (laughs) Uh, He was a very humble man. He was interested in in welcoming everyone into the kingdom, whether they were American or not, whether they were white or not, whether they were male or not. That sort of thing didn't matter to him. What mattered to him was that we were all children of God, and we all needed to hear the good news. That was really restorative for me, coming off a time of, you know, when I started teaching at ENC, Dan was a few months from dying. And then after that, my daughter went off to college at a different university because we didn't offer what she wanted at our school. (laughs) And just working long hours and finishing up my dissertation, I was exhausted. And this was a real refreshment for me. Reynolds was a gift to me Hmm. that I hope is a gift to the church. What are the things or when are the times when you feel joy from your faith or that you feel most that God is working in your life or is with you? Oh, um. That's a really good question. I have to think about it a little bit. Certainly, the Church of the Nazarene is not a highly liturgical denomination. That is, we don't have a very ordered service like a Catholic church would or a Lutheran church would. But we do have some liturgical services, and I write the service for the church that I attend. Mm. So I have to write a series of prayers and select hymns to match the the four scripture readings for the day. 
But one of them is the prayer of confession, which is which never fails to move me as I have to sit and think about my life and the lives of the people around me and all that we have received through Christ's atoning work. What a gift. And mm-hmm. to be able to say, I stand here as a human being in need of you is humbling, but it's also a glorious feeling to know that there's not only someone listening, but that he has the power to do something about my helpless estate, you know, that he has already done it and continues to welcome us into the kingdom. I find that uh, people are, as I said earlier, people are often afraid to talk to someone who is ill or someone who is aged or someone who is lonely or someone who's going through a difficult time. But I often find that those are my moments of greatest joy because I have good news to share And I usually have a very strong sense that God is with me in those moments so that the Holy Spirit is guiding our conversation in ways that far exceed anything that I could probably do on my own. And it's it's often startling to me and to whoever I'm working with at the time, whoever I'm talking to, just how well we are known by God. Mm. That, you know, I will say something that is incredibly powerful to the person who then looks at me and says, how did you know that I was worried about that thing? or that I had been imagining this for a long time but didn't feel that I could possibly do it, and you just told me that you thought I could. So uh, it's in the little ways. You know, occasionally I hear God's voice, as I've already said, but not often. Usually it's in those little interactions with other human beings who are all striving to be the the best human beings they can be and to meddle through life. Dr. Mary Luchet been on campus here at Brigham Young University as part of Interfaith Dialogue. Mm-hmm. She's a member of the Church of the Nazarene. Dr. Shea, thank you so much for speaking in good faith today. Oh, it has been such a delight. Thank you for inviting me. I've enjoyed every minute. Thanks for tuning in to In Good Faith. In the second half of the show, we'll hear an audio excerpt from a film about the beginnings of the Church of the Nazarene. And a panel of listeners will talk about the ideas presented by our guest, Dr. Mary Luchet. Back in a moment with more of In Good Faith. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person accounts and stories of faith and belief. The Church of the Nazarene is a result of mergers which occurred between various holiness churches, associations, and denominations, most of these by the first decade of the 1900s, bringing together organizations in the western and eastern ends of the U.S. Among those in the West were Phineas Brzee, who sought to return to John Wesley's original goals of preaching the good news of the gospel to the poor and underprivileged. Also in this group was Dr. Joseph Whitney. Here's a bit of their story. An audio excerpt used by permission from the Church of the Nazarene-produced film Pastor to the People, sharing the events of the merger as well as the naming and mission of the new denomination. We see the providence of God at work here, Dr. Brzee. You and Dr. Widney's preaching and leadership at our love feasts has been a true blessing. We are ready and willing to see God's fulfillment of all he has started here. Phineas, We are asking you to join us and Dr. Whitney in a more formal arrangement to continue our Christian work, especially our work with the poor and with the spreading of the doctrine of Christian holiness. We need the leadership that you and Dr. Whitney provide. And even more so, we need your preaching, Reverend Brzee. God is at work here, Phineas. It is undeniable. We have a truly eclectic group from meager immigrants to the most respectable in Los Angeles. 
This requires a leader who can traverse these delicacies. You are that man, Phineas. There is no one in our assemblage with these graces. Phineas? I am now without an assignment. I know that the Methodist Church would accept me back and find me an appointment, which I would accept, if it the will of God. I spent many years in Iowa, working hard to grow my ministry. I made sure every detail was covered. All things I set out to do were well thought out and planned carefully. All the while thinking it was the work of God. Yet, it was all vain glory. It was truly my ministry, not God's. And it nearly ended me. Had you approached me then, I would have taken weeks to mull over this decision. How could this be a favorable proposition? How could this further my ministry? Well, that man no longer exists. Today, I throw myself at the feet of God and rest in His providence. He has truly started something here, and I give myself over to it as I have given over my heart to the loving God. We adapted Methodist polity to suit our needs, all while continuing to help the needy and spread the doctrine of holiness. I thought I would find you in here. JP? I did not sleep a wink last night. Are you ill? Hardly. They're calling us a new denomination. Doctors Brissy and Whitney will found a new denomination with a focus on evangelistic and city mission work and the spreading of the doctrine and experience of Christian holiness. What do they call the denomination? No name had yet been decided upon for the new organization which Dr. Brissy and Dr. Whitney proposed to found. I think it's time to name ourselves. A daunting task. I believe God spoke to me last night in deep prayer. The name of our group, or now shall we say denomination, should reflect what we are doing here. Our Lord was from Nazareth, town of the marginalized and poor. Does that not reflect what God has started here? Perhaps then we shall call ourselves Nazarenes. We shall be the church of the Nazarene, the very name symbolizes the lowly, toiling mission of Jesus. We are linked with Christ to the great, struggling heart of the world. Our church is a place where men, women, black, white, Chinese, Mexican, Irish, saints and sinners all sit side by side, where the pious man and the drunkard shall embrace the unity of the Lord and the holy life. God's blessing was on us. We became Nazarenes and took to heart this lowly and toiling mission. What do you do when the plans you've made seem to fall apart? Do you have confidence that even if you can't do much in a situation, God can? And how many times does God need to send you a message before you sit up and pay attention? We invited a group of people to listen to our guest and then respond. Dan Alongo is a New Jersey native who loves classical music and all things to do with cars. He's a graduate of BYU with a degree in linguistics. 
Emily Paxman is an avid Netflix watcher, soccer fan, and cheese aficionado who studied Arabic at BYU and now works in healthcare IT consulting. Kurt Johnson is a sports writer covering high school sports at PrepsUtah.com. He was born and raised in Northern California and has a degree in broadcasting. Paula Johnson is a mother and wife and a perpetual student. She loves learning. That was, a, that was a great talk, and I can relate to Dr. Shea in so many ways. The first thing she, she said that I related to is the fact that her mom was like the superintendent of the CCD. Having grown up Catholic, I experienced the same thing. Have My mom dragged us down on Saturday mornings. We had to miss our Saturday morning cartoons to um, attend CCD, but I remember feeling special because of that experience, um, one, because my mom was a superintendent, and for some somehow that translated to me being special. Not sure how, but um, also because it was just a, a positive experience with, with the nuns and the teachers and, and learning the things we did. I was interested by that story because I noticed throughout the entire time she was talking, she shared, you know, I don't know that this was a purposeful theme, but this theme of the different ways she's either given service or received service. And I loved that that was something that was a very formative part of her childhood. As she described some of the activities that her mom did, some of them sounded to me at least extremely mundane and boring. And it got me thinking about a lot of what she talked about were were putting things in contrast. So, you know, making lists or standing and ringing that bell versus you know, helping people who had intention to minister and using her skills and development. And I was struck by the fact that all of us have skills we can use in very strategic ways that only we can, but that there's always room for us, even if we feel inadequate or don't feel that we have the skills to be the most valuable person in any situation, to stand there and ring that bell. And I love that her mom demonstrated that to her, and that really resonated with me quite a bit. That phrase actually really struck me the because she said, I loved feeling so much more enriched than exhausted when she talked about ringing the bell. And it made me think of, I grew up in, not as a Catholic, but in, in a religious home where my mother was diagnosed with cancer when I was a sophomore in high school, just at the time when she had been asked to teach an early morning religion class at 6.30 every morning that I was I was attending in the same place, not with her as my teacher. But I remember her devotion, how fast she got back to teaching even though she had major surgery for breast cancer at a time when that wasn't, that was a tough thing, really tough thing to do. And I remember that devotion that she had, and she seemed much more enriched than exhausted. And it was such a great memory to me that later on, when I was asked to teach the same type of an early morning religion class, I had that same feeling is it was hard to get up that early in the morning and then go about your work day. But I felt so much more enriched than exhausted. And I, that phrase, that she, she started that interview, Mary Lou, with that phrase, and it just stuck with me. So much more enriched than exhausted. Yeah, I really loved how when she was talking about the family dynamic, she said, I can't remember a time when Jesus wasn't a part of the family. I, that just really resonated with me. Uh, but, you know, especially speaking about her mother and the service there. My mother also had a period of time when she was teaching an early morning religion class, and I was meant to attend it, and, <laughs> and so I had to go along with her. That experience of bringing Jesus into the family, I think, is such a beautiful homage to what kind of a mother she had. And it really made me think of the wonderful things that my mother's done for me 
in my childhood and growing up and and how religion can contribute in such a positive way to the family dynamic. And, and I really love that with her telling us about how that inspired her to want to be clergy from the time that she was a youth, that this calling, that this mission that she's been on, that Mary Lou has been on to become a minister was really the, the seed was planted in her youth uh, and, and that exemplar of, of her mother's service really started as the genesis of, of that mission. Well, both of you, Kurt and Dan, kind of touched on that enriched versus exhausted. One of the things that surprised me, and I'd love to know if, if I'm crazy here or if you others notice this as well, is there were different parts in her life where when she was able to lean into service, you know, she was enriched versus exhausted. But when she talked about being called to healing, I one of the things that I was amazed by was in that context, before she was able to move to that state of being enriched and then helping others, she had to go through her own state of healing. And I, you know, that that call to heal was not just for those around her, but it was for her after what she had been through in her life, those feelings of failure. And I, I loved this idea that at different types in her life, she was being enriched through her work and giving healing, but at other times, she had to be humble enough to accept the healing. It struck me because I, you know, over the last eight years or so, I've been diagnosed with a, a couple different chronic pain conditions. And I, I'm very frequently sick and ill. And I, I try whenever possible, you know, I, I want to go out and I want to volunteer and do good things. But I always feel resistance when I feel others trying to extend that same healing to me. They come over to visit. I don't want to answer my door. I just want to go to sleep and ignore the world. And I loved that you have the opportunity, as demonstrated through her life, to be enriched and, and lean in and serve more to avoid that exhaustion. But by the, on the other hand, by the same token, that, that exhaustion can also be overcome by a willingness to accept that healing from others. And I felt that that was really profound. In my experience, I hear people often talking about the desire to serve more, and there's a resistance to being served. And I loved that she made that okay and made that safe and made that part of the, the mission of Christ in her own life. I wonder if that's because she said this several times, is that she acknowledged that she could not do things herself. But she said this more than once, that, but God can. What she, what she can do, God did for her. And maybe she, she recognized that uh, the service from others as coming from God and being humble enough to, to I mean, first of all, for us to, to know that there's a saying that we heard in our congregation not long ago that um, repentance is not the backup plan. It is. It was the plan. And she recognized that I'm a sinner and I cannot... I cannot overcome the world in this life. I can't be sanctified without God's help. And she recognized that. And so I'm wondering if, if that recognition provides the humility to accept help from others. And, and she also mentioned the prayers of others, you know, how they helped her. If, and if that comes from the humility of recognizing that, that we can't do things by ourselves, we need God to help us. Yeah, she actually mentioned that one of the great gifts she's been given is to have faith her whole life. But there have been times that she's kind of been a grumbler. I can relate to the grumbling. I mean, things happen, life gets hard, and we grumble. Job situations, I've dealt with that. Health situations. Sometimes those are God calling us back. And she specifically said that her practice of a faithful life has always been there, 
But sometimes God has had to put people in her life to guide her back. And I think if we think about our lives, I think we can all think of some of those people in our lives who've come along to guide us back when God needed to call us back. Because she talked about being at the intersection three times. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. and, and having, you know, I, I remember driving down a road in California and driving by a guy who was pushing his car as everyone kind of went around him. And he's pushing his car to get out of the way. And I hear this voice in my head saying, and I was in a hurry to get to a work event. And I hear this voice saying, you need to stop and help that guy. And of course, I ignored the voice and I kept driving. And I got about a mile away and that voice happened again. And I finally, finally turned around and went back. to. And the guy was still pushing his own car with no help as cars went around him in rush hour traffic. Sometimes God has to call us multiple times. And it seems like in my life, it's also true that sometimes it's through people he puts in my life that I finally hear his voice. And I think that maybe we've experienced that. And she seemed to experience it as well. Yeah, I wanted to go back to something that Paula talked about where Mary Lou had said, a large part of God's grace in my life is learning that I can't fix much at all. This idea that through, through God, we can become more and that we can serve and overcome our own deficiencies. I remember a time when I was serving in my own congregation and I felt so completely powerless to be able to help because I just didn't know what I should do to help. As I was just kind of praying silently in my heart, standing there in the the lobby of the church actually, there was a prompting that I should go speak to a certain person in my congregation. I said, sure, why not? Let's let's go chat with this person. As I sat down and and just kind of chit-chatted with this person, not having any idea what I was supposed to do or say, it quickly became evident that this friend of mine had suffered a a very particular uh, trauma, sexual harassment that was really bothering her and that she needed to speak to somebody about it. Through that experience, we were able to lighten her load and to get her some help and figure out what was going on there. And that came about just by listening for the promptings of of the Lord and the Holy Ghost. As Mary Lou talked about later in the interview, she said usually it's in those little interactions with other people when she was talking about how the grace of God is manifest. I certainly feel that that's true. I've been on both ends of that where I remember a time that I was not feeling very good about my church attendance. In fact, I was in church and I felt... Like, I just wasn't connecting. I got up towards the middle of services and just kind of figured I'd go home and call it a quote-unquote sick day, if you will. And before I got to the door, a friend of mine that I hadn't seen in five or six years passed through the door, and she said to me, Hey, Dan, where are you going? Come to Sunday school with me. And she put her arm around my shoulder and took me back to church. She never knew how much that interaction meant to me, but that little thing saved me that day. Well, I thought it was interesting that phrase you that you referenced, you know, I, I can't fix much at all. That much to me was an important piece of that. You know, this isn't she doesn't have a fatalist view of the world where she can't have any kind of influence. 
And I, I love the story you shared about that, that prompting to go and have a conversation with somebody reminded me of her talking about writing notes to someone and how much that meant that I can't fix much. I may not be able to fix what happens to the individual in your story or fix the illness of the woman she wrote the note to. But what you can do is is you can uplift, you can lighten that burden. Uh, I was kind of giggling to myself silently as she shared that story. I, I was sitting at my desk uh, a few days ago, and I had a big project that was due, and I really didn't have time to do anything other than just finish that project. And all of a sudden, I was struck by the impression to, you know, I'm going to write a handwritten letter to a friend who recently moved away. And I can't remember the last time I wrote a handwritten letter. You know, I'm squarely in the millennial generation. I'm not sure that my hand <laughs> remembers quite how to make all the shapes. Uh, but I pulled out a notepad, and I just did it. And uh, texted that friend later that night to ask for his address and said I would be sending him a letter. And it it was interesting because he said, you know, I was thinking earlier today that I wish somebody would write me a letter. And I thought that was such a weird thing. And that kind of prompted a a whole other conversation that, you know, he'll get my letter and it will ask him, what's up with you? And I know what's up because we had this conversation, but, you know, I'm not able to fix what's going on in his life. I can't fix it. But that act of of being willing to ask the question to take that small initiative, I know was something that was beneficial to him. And, you know, hopefully in the event of a terrible apocalypse with no uh, electricity, I will have regained the letter writing skill and I hope that will benefit me in the future. But I, I just loved that. I can't fix much. And what I can fix maybe isn't necessarily fixing, but it's it's a lightening of a load and it's it's giving visibility and acknowledgement to someone's pain or experiences. One of the things that she said in reference to talking to others or, or giving notes to others or just interactions with others was that she, she was guided by the Holy Spirit. And clearly you guys have had those experiences also. And, and But she said also that God clearly knows us. I had an experience, I'm sorry, where I had re- had just received some disappointing news and like we do, I was complaining. I was like, Heavenly Father, what the heck? <laughs> Are you even in my life? Do you even know what's going on? Just, I just need to know that you're there, a part of my life, and that you know me. And I was thinking this in my mind. I'm, I'm going down this long flight of stairs, and I get to where I needed to go. And this girl who doesn't really even know me hands me a flower. And she said... I felt like I needed to give this to you today, and this was left over. I just came from my floral class, and and I felt like I should give it to you. And I said, you don't know how much that means to me. I'm glad you did that. I really needed it. And she said, well, I almost didn't. I felt like it was a really weird prompting because I don't know you (laughs) well enough to give you this flower, but I'm glad that I listened to the prompt, and I was glad also that she listened to the prompt because— I needed to know the Heavenly Father knew me, and He was there in my life, despite the fact that I just gotten really disappointing news. You're talking about your your situation, talking to that someone comes up and talks to me, or I need to talk to someone, and I don't know what to say. Yeah, and I I, I think about it all the time. What am I going to say? And I thought about this recently. I my my brother passed away suddenly, and then my Paula's mother passed away, and it was all so close to each other, and. Things are going and people want to talk to you and they want to help you, but they don't know what to say. I don't know what to say to my wife's or my brother's wife and family because 
what do you say when he has a sudden heart attack and they and they've lost their father and their husband and he's 51 years old and it's not expected but one of the things she said that really struck me is she said sometimes we shy away from talking about the difficult things because Mm -hmm. i do because you don't know what to say but then she said i can't fix it but i know who can yeah and i thought that was just a her life seemed to be filled with knowing who can she knew that god and the savior of the world could fix it and she didn't have to fix it and she didn't have to have all the answers and i think that's a great message for for anyone to know that maybe we don't have to know the answers when we talk to somebody or when we write that note or when we hand out that flower we just have to know that we're receiving a prompting or someone's received a prompting to do something because they know who can help and they're inviting that power to come into someone's life absolutely kurt and i think sometimes what we say is is nothing at all. Sometimes what we need is a, a shoulder to lean on, to cry on. I loved when Mary Lou said, complaining or worrying is still an expression of faith. Yeah. I feel like so often whenever we, whenever I feel a moment of doubt or insecurity, that immediately that, that seems to snowball into me questioning whether I have enough faith or not. Yeah. And speaking about disappointing news, my wife and I just recently got married and we got the disappointing news that we're actually not able to have children. And that's not news that anyone wants to hear, but much less a newlywed couple. And I spent a good amount of time on my knees kind of asking, what, what's going on here? And skirting around, am I complaining or am I having an honest conversation with God about this subject? What am I meant to learn here? And I don't have all the answers. I don't know that the chapter is closed yet on that. But the conversation continues with God as I daily pray and, and seek for guidance on how can, I be, how can I be a better son to him? How can I be a better husband to my wife? And what does it mean to be a family? It's been an opportunity to learn and to grow. And I, like I said, I absolutely loved when Mary Lou said, complaining or worrying is still an expression of faith because that's something that I've, I've experienced myself. I loved her response to that that sense of uncertainty in her own life, especially within a, a religious faith-based context. At least in my experience, in my own congregations growing up, it felt like these are the things that are expected of you. And when, when suddenly your life doesn't map to those things, you're in a state of crisis. I, I think about the examples she set, not that this is the answer for everyone, but principally I loved that she she responded this way. She said, well, you know, I I was Catholic and I got divorced, which is not supposed to happen. I changed faiths, which is not supposed to happen. I married this wonderful man who died, and that's not ideal either. And she said that, well, her scholarly pursuit is one of her acts of worship. That's probably not what she had expected to do with her life, but she just found that there are going to be other ways for her to express who she is and, and bring God into her own life and to others. I, I loved when she mentioned just the fact that within the context she was living originally, she felt that she had that limited opportunity to answer the call of God. And when I've had moments of, of disappointment or or feeling like what I was supposed to do or what I believed was the only path for me no longer was a reality that, you know, I, I feel like I could learn a lot from her of, okay, well, I don't know. That, does that mean I go have scholarly pursuits? I don't know. That's necessarily the only option. You know, if, if bad things happen in your life, you must get a PhD. That's the takeaway here, I'm sure. Uh, but 
perhaps my view of what my life was supposed to be is limiting my opportunities to answer the call of God. And to instead of feeling like I'm a failure or, you know, I'll always feel disappointment in myself or in the circumstances, I don't think that can be avoided. But can I throw myself into something else and accept that God is is bigger than that one life path and there are other opportunities for me to fulfill my mission here as a, as a child of God on earth and to help uplift others as well. When Mary Lou talked about that topic, it struck me. I've, I've had a period in my life that was very long of running my own business, but really wanting a real job and targeting real jobs that I thought I should have. I was qualified. I should get that job and applying for the job and it didn't go anywhere or having interviews that I thought I'm getting that job and then it didn't go anywhere. And during the time, I was on my knees constantly praying to God that I get that job. That's what I was telling him. And then when I didn't get the job, there came the frustration. And I think we get to a point maybe in our lives or maybe in the next life, as she happened to mention, where we look back and we understand why we didn't get the job. The path that we thought we were supposed to follow isn't the path that God needs us to follow to become who he needs us to become. So many of Mary Lou's examples shared that. Her first marriage was a disaster for her. But what was it? It helped her to better appreciate the second one. And it helped her to get through the challenges of the second one. And it helped her through her life. She was able to look back and see the the times in her life. The hard times weren't necessarily because they weren't because God didn't love her and wasn't watching out for her, but they were, in fact, because he was loving her and watching out for her and helping her to experience. And I struggle with that every day because I want to tell God what to do. I want to tell him what's best for me because I know. But turns out maybe I don't know. And that's one of the probably the greatest things I learned from this entire interview is she understands that God knows that maybe she didn't always know. That was a great revelation to her and, and, and through that interview to me. Absolutely, Kurt. I've had that experience in my life where I've had those prayers, conversations with God where I've told him from where I sit, from where I stand, this is the answer. And you're denying me that answer. (laughs) Yeah. And it took me a long while to reconcile those moments. But every single time, without fail, every time, once I got past that decision point or past that struggle I got to take a look back and see that God was absolutely right, that those times served as as moments of instruction for me. I loved when Mary Lou said, grace is not a finite commodity. And and I am so grateful for that because, boy, I have used quite a bit of grace myself. (laughs) Driving in that Boston traffic similarly. (laughs) I had one thing that was on here that I was kind of thinking about. She talked about when she was applying to colleges and she walked in, Mm -hmm. but she interviewed for colleges and the schools were telling her that she needed to take off her faith like it was a backpack when she was in scholarly work. And she basically was unable to commit to that because scholarly work is an act of worship. But Mm -hmm. the thing that struck me is I think often in life we're told and we even think that, oh, I can't apply my faith to my life. But in fact, I think one of the things that she taught me through this interview that reminded me of is our faith is our life. The things that we believe, the things that we know guide the things that we do every single day. The the decisions we make 
every day are guided by our faith and what and knowing that there's a higher power that's answering and helping us through and trying to help us learn. And I think that she clearly understood that. I, I, anyway, I was struck by that. She was talking about it in terms of scholarly work. I think of it in terms of everything. When we're talking about whether it's work or politics or family or friends, all the relationships we have, we can't take off our faith because of the situation that we're in. Our faith is part of who we are, and it certainly is with Mary Lou. That's our time for today. Thanks to our panelists, Dan, Emily, Kurt, and Paula, and especially to Dr. Mary Lou Shea for generously sharing her stories and her faith. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. Where do you listen to In Good Faith? We'd love to know. Email us at ingoodfaith at byu.edu. Find us online at byuradio.org slash ingoodfaith. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you get podcasts. Our Twitter feed is at ingoodfaithbyu. All music and audio used by permission. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. Our associate producer is Rachel Sherman. I'm your host and producer, Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join us again soon right here in Good Faith.